Well, good evening, and thank you to Pam for leading us so, so thoughtfully in our service so far. During the, the, the singing of the first hymn, as I was uh, straining to read the words uh, on the, the screen, I remembered uh, one of the things I need to do in Kirkpatrick on Sunday evenings to remember to bring my glasses, uh, and I've forgotten this evening, so hopefully uh, I'll be able to see what, I, what I've written. Now, it'd be useful if you were uh, to keep your Bibles open uh, at the passage uh, that Pam read to us earlier, Romans chapter 2. If you remember, you'll find that on page 1,129 in the, the Pew Bibles. Let's just pray for a moment. Father, we thank you for what we have already thought about uh, this evening in our service together. We thank you for your character. We thank you for your faithfulness, and we thank you for your love. Father, we thank you now for your word and for the power that's contained it. It is like no other book, but it is your living word. And we pray, Father, now that you would bring it alive to us. Amen. You probably remember it well. It was just over two years ago that judges were facing the wrath of the public. A huge proportion of media interest was devoted to the topic we were told that judges were out of touch with the views of ordinary people. They've no idea about real life, was the cry. They've lost touch with the views of ordinary folk. Now, you'll probably remember the context well. A 64-year-old political journalist, John Sargent, bore the wrath of the strictly come dancing judges. You're you're outstanding at dancing really badly, declared one. And yet the public, they just couldn't agree. As week after week, they defied the judges and allowed Sergeant to remain in the competition. You probably remember the debate as it raged across the nation. The judges sought to defend their position. Judge Craig Revel Horwood declared, I think John should go. I still maintain this is a dance competition. You need people that can dance. Sergeant, well, he took issue with this, and he relied on his strong personal following rather than his deft footwork as the basis for his survival. The judges and their judgment were very much under scrutiny. Now, tonight, the theme of judgment will be very much at the center of our thoughts. Not the judgment of man, but the forthcoming judgment of Almighty God that we learn of in the Bible. Now let me start by building a bridge between the passage that Pam read to us earlier uh, from Romans and what we've recently been studying here in Kirkpatrick on Sunday evenings. Two weeks ago, if you were with us, you might remember that we began our studies in the letter that Paul wrote to the Christians that met in first century Rome, that predominantly Gentile bunch but with a number of Jews amongst them. We've seen already in our studies how Paul's letter was an attempt to set out for the Christians living there the plan that God had put in place to allow all of humankind, whether Jew or Gentile, to have a personal relationship with him. And we've been thinking about that, particularly in our local context here in Ballyhackamore, how important it is for us to understand this good news as we continue to strive in lots of different ways as a church to share that good news 
with the local community here in East Belfast. Now, you remember that the Bible calls this plan the gospel or the good news, for that's exactly what it is. It is good news. Now, some of you at home may well have a translation of the Bible that's just entitled that, the good news version. For as I've said, that's exactly what the message of the Bible is. It's good news. Now, Paul's excited in his letter to the church at Rome about this good news. We saw that in chapter 1 two weeks ago when Christoph preached to us. Paul said that he wasn't ashamed of the good news, but rather he said it was God's way of offering salvation from a life lived in separation from God and instead to a life lived in a personal relationship with him. I wonder perhaps if we become too familiar with that overall message of what the Bible claims. Think about that claim. It's outstanding. It's audacious that each individual living here on planet Earth, each one of us, can have a personal relationship with the God who made and controls not only this world, but the entire universe. For Paul, this really is good news. And we're going to hear lots about that good news as we study the entirety of this letter together. However, Paul sets out to show us the good news by first helping us to understand the bad news. Now, he doesn't do that. He doesn't tell us about the bad news just to to keep a sense of balance in his letter. No, he tells us the bad news for a purpose because it helps us to understand the good news, to put it in its context. He tells us the problem that we're in and then he tells us later in his letter how we can escape from it. The bad news, the bad news is that the entire human race is viewed by Almighty God as having fallen short of the standards that he requires for us to live in a relationship with him. And his sense of justice and perfection requires that he must deliver judgment on all of us because of that. That's the message of Romans chapter 2 in a nutshell. One day, the day of judgment, Almighty God will judge us and deliver his verdict on whether we've lived in the way he intended. Now, as you've seen from the passage as Pam read it to it, Paul's argument is dense and it's complex, but that's it in a nutshell. One day, on the day of judgment, the Almighty will deliver his judgment on each one of us. Now, we've seen already from our studies uh, in Romans that Paul puts, uh, and the passage that, that Pam read this, that Paul divides all of humankind into three broad categories. He tells us something about each category of people and why they might believe they can escape God's judgment, why it won't fall on them. And then Paul explains what will actually happen. In chapter 1, which we, we considered last week, you may recall that we met the first group. I'm going to call them the secularists. Those are people who take no account of God in their lives, and they're not concerned about concepts of, of right or wrong. 
to some extent, we might see them as, as pluralists, allowing each individual to determine their own standards based on their own values and not seeking to elevate one set of standards above another. Now, that secular viewpoint is something that's very prevalent in the world today. You'll see it all around you. That's who we thought about last week. We thought about the secularists of chapter 1. Now, tonight we're going to meet two other broad categories of people, the moralists and then the religious people. Now, firstly, the moralists. In verses 1 to 16 of chapter 2, we meet them. They're people who, like the secularists of last week, take no account of God in trying to determine what's the right way to live. But they've set their own standards, and they believe that those who fall beneath them are in the wrong, while they and those who adhere to their standards were there, they're in the right. We'll see tonight whether Paul says they'll face God's judgment. And then finally, we're going to meet uh, the people that we might call the religious people. They're people who claim that they do take account of God in seeking to determine how to conduct their lives and how they should live and how they place their ultimate destiny. And again, we'll see what Paul says to them about whether they'll face God's judgment. So firstly, the moralists. Now, we've already mentioned that the moralists take no account of God in determining what is right or wrong, but rather they've devised their own standards by which they and others are to be judged. Essentially, the moralist says something like this, I've set the standard of what's good enough, and I'm the one who'll be the judge. Well, Paul sets about exploring whether such an approach will suffice. Will the moralist the one who sets their own standards, escape God's judgment, for they themselves act as the judge instead of him. Now, Paul's as clear to the moralist in chapter 2 as he was to the secularist in chapter 1. They can draw no comfort from thinking they can escape God's judgment. In fact, Paul says to them that they, that they will be judged in exactly the same way as they have sought to judge others. The moralist, just like the secularist, will one day face God's judgment for this reason. Whatever standard the moralist sets will always be short of what God in his holiness and his purity requires. Paul leaves the moralist in no doubt. They will face God's judgment. Now, Paul tells us in this chapter lots of things about that judgment a judgment that he says will fall on the secularist and the moralist alike. Let's look at a number of things in those opening verses of chapter 2 about this judgment. Firstly, he says about this judgment, it is certain. Look at verse 5. Paul speaks emphatically when he says, it will be revealed. In verse 3, he says, there will be no escape. Paul is clear. God's judgment is certain. It is a thing that will happen. The second thing he tells us about this judgment, he tells us when it will be delivered. Look again at, at verse 16. He says it will take place on a day 
of judgment. And look again at verse 5. He says it will occur on a day of wrath. What Paul's saying is there's a specific point in time that none of us know but God Almighty knows when he will sit in judgment. And thirdly, he tells us who will sit in judgment. Look at verse 16 where he says, the judge will be Jesus Christ. He tells us a little about what kind of judge Jesus will be. Look at verse 11. He says he won't be corrupt or partial. Rather, he'll be fair. He'll be impartial. Verse 11 says, for God does not show favoritism. And he tells us who will be in the dock when he speaks of the judgment being dispensed by Jesus to individuals. You can't hide in a group. The judgment will be to individuals. Have you got the picture that Paul is painting here about this judgment? It's going to be certain. It'll take place in a particular point in history. Jesus will be the judge. He'll be a fair and an honest judge. And it will be individuals who will be in the dock. So now we've set the the scene for the judgment that will be faced by those who take no account of God and how they conduct their lives. But I wonder what will actually happen at this judgment. Well, in these verses, Paul gives us a clue as to what to expect. Paul tells us that the judge, Jesus, will consider all that has happened in an individual's life. This is not a a courtroom in which only what the parties want the judge to hear will be told to him. Rather, he will look into their lives. There will be no secrets held back from him. You'll find that in verse 16. Jesus will consider the entirety of the evidence. He sits as the omnipresent, omniscient, all-knowing judge. Paul tells us a bit more about what this judgment will be like. He tells us that the judgment will be based on facts, not on rumor or mistakes. He talks about that in verse 2 when he says the judgment will be one based on truth. Now, in all of this, we might say to Paul, what's your point? Well, Paul's point is a simple one. He's saying that whether or not you believe in Almighty God, the fact, a statement of absolute truth, is that one day he will deliver judgment on all who take no account of him in their lives in the way that he says he will. That's the moralists. In the second part of the passage that that Pam read to us, we thought about the religious people. Paul finally deals with a group who might try to argue that this forthcoming judgment that he's been talking about and his argument's been developing around They might be a group that that think they might be exempt from that. But look carefully at what he says in verses 17 through to the end of the chapter. He uses there as a, a case study one particular religious belief that would have been familiar to to many in Paul's day. He bases his case study around Judaism. Now the argument that a, a Jew or indeed any with a faith in God might try to advance is that their belief in God means that they'll escape 
God's judgment. They'll be exempt from it. Now, in Peterson's paraphrase of the Bible, when he comes to this passage, he succinctly summarizes Paul's point when he gives these verses the title, Religion Can't Save You. Religion Can't Save You. We've seen already in our passage tonight the principle that God applies when he dispenses judgment. The deeds that you have performed during your life are determinative of what will happen after life. Judgment will be according to what you've done. Look at verse 6 of chapter 2. God will give to each person according to what he's done. The argument the religious person might try to run to escape such a judgment could be, but, but I know you. I know how you wish life to be conducted, and thus I'm spared from the judgment because of my knowledge, because of what I, I know. Now, Paul, in these verses in Romans chapter 2, sets out to show us that simply will not do. Let's look for a moment at the, 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 in greater detail at the argument that he sets out in this passage, the argument that the religious person might try to make to escape God's judgment. The argument they might make might run something as follows. Verse 17, we know what God's law is. Again in verse 17, we even brag about it. Verse 18, don't just know what his law is. We know what God's will is. And then think about who we are when they say boastfully, we are, verse 19, we're a guide to the blind. We're a guide to those who walk in darkness. Verse 20, we're instructors to the foolish. We're teachers to the infants. And what's more, we have a special physical mark given to us by Almighty God to show that we are favored to him, circumcision. For all of those reasons, we're special and we're exempt from God's judgment. Now, wonder is that where you might find yourself tonight? Might you be able to cite lots of reasons as to why God would surely not judge you? You might well be able to say that you know this book, the Bible, inside out. You know the stories in it since you were a child, and you believe you know how God operates. However, Paul argues that a searching self-examination shows that knowledge, knowing these things of themselves, simply won't do. That'll provide no escape from God's judgment. Verses 21, 22, and 23 he points out how these religious people may well know lots about God, but actually they fail to live up to the standards they claim to know. Now, he sets this out in a, in a form of dialogue, inviting them to engage in, in some sort of introspection. Look at what he says. You teach others? Do you teach yourself? You preach against stealing? Do you steal? You say people should not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You abhor idols. Do you rob temples? You brag about the law. Do you break it? 
all of the things that the religious people might have considered to be of an advantage to them actually aren't because they're simply mere words and they don't bear any resemblance to their lives. Their lives fail to show how the things they claim to know actually mean anything. I wonder, is that the same for us? We might know lots about God. We might know this book from cover to cover. And we might try to live according to what he would want. But I wonder if we look honestly into our lives, if I look honestly into mine, I would see that it falls far short of the standards of perfection that God demands. I wonder if we reflect it just on our own conduct and our own thoughts uh, over the last week. Maybe we don't even have to go as far back as a week. Could any of us stand before Almighty God and suggest that we've been good enough to satisfy his desire for holiness and for purity? Is being religious good enough to avoid God's forthcoming judgment? Well, Paul is clear. Religion it can't save you. So what Paul is saying to all three types of persons, whatever category you place yourself in, and we're all in one of them, whether you claim to try to live a life without recourse to God, the secularists of chapter 1, the moralists of chapter 2, or whether you try to live a religious life like the Jews that we've just thought about, All of us will face God's judgment when Jesus carries out the assessment of what we've done with him in our lives. Now, some of you might say, this is not good news. Paul seems to have misled us when he claimed that this gospel was for our salvation. What we've heard of so far doesn't seem to be for our salvation. Quite the opposite. It seems to be for our damnation. You could well be forgiven for saying, this is not good news. And I would agree with you. And I would disagree with you. Let me illustrate. Suppose you've been suffering from pain and you've tried all manner of things to take it away. And on a routine visit to the doctor, they discover that you have a serious illness. Now, is that good news? And you would say to me, emphatically not. That's not good news. It's not good news that I have a serious illness. And I would agree with you. However, let me pose the question slightly differently. Are you glad that they found it, identified it, and told you about it while it may still be treated? You'd probably say yes. Yes, I'm glad they found it, identified it and told me about it, well, it might still be treated. Well, then it is good news. Well, no and yes. And that's exactly right. No and yes. It's not good news because serious illness is good. It's good news because finding out the real problem with my life is good news while it can be treated. And so my response 
to this concern that while in one sense the fact that one day God will judge us is bad news, nevertheless, it's also good news because this problem is eminently treatable by our great God. And we're going to see later in this lesson how he does that. We're going to hear, as we work our way through this letter, that while he will judge all of humankind, his judgment will divide us into one of two groups. In one group, his wrath and his anger will fall. However, for the second group, as Paul develops his argument in the passages that we're going to explore over the next few weeks together, his good news is that though God will have to judge us all, we will not face his wrath and his anger, but rather we will face a glorious destiny, one of a life lived forever with him, our loving and gracious God. Now, while we still have breath in our bodies, we can choose which destiny awaits us. And that, that really is good news. If that's something that that you would like to, to talk about further and to explore further, any of us at the front would be delighted to take the time after our service this evening to talk to you about that good news. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you for your good news. Father, we thought about tonight some difficult things, some unpleasant things, that your word has to say to us, that one day there will be a day of judgment which all mankind will have to face. But Father, we thank you for the good news contained in your word, that for some who put their trust and their faith in what Jesus has done, on that day of judgment, they will receive good news as Jesus has taken the punishment that should have been given to us unto him, and we can live a life of glorious uh, destiny with him. And so, Father, we thank you. Father, we pray for any who are with us tonight who haven't yet experienced that. We pray that tonight, Father, that, that they would do so. And Father, for those of us who do know that, who have experienced that good news, we pray that we would be energized in sharing our faith with others and inviting them to experience that good news also. Amen.